co-hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. You may have heard the Dow just crossed 28,000 for the first time in history. Think about that. It was only four months ago that it crossed 27,000, and not to be outdone, both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are reaching new highs too. Needless to say, we've just had a remarkable 10 months in the market, not to mention the last 10 years, when stocks have seemingly done nothing except go higher. And investors and money managers, well, they're all feeling pretty confident in their portfolios. This leads me to wonder how long and far this incredibly strong bull can run. I guess we'll only know after the fact. In the near term, I think it can still go a bit farther. Why not? According to the Federal Reserve, the consumer, which makes up about 70% of our economy, is in fairly good shape. As I've mentioned before, with the strong labor market, Americans have been able to make more, spend more, and save more. A win-win-win. And it's not just the consumer. Our central bank seems to be on board too. They've cut interest rates three times so far this year, and they've been injecting money into the system. Now, from a market perspective, not much attention is being given to what's happening in Washington. The markets generally care more about policies than about politics. So what could go wrong? As Jimmy Buffett, not Warren Buffett, but Jimmy Buffett says, it's a fine line between Saturday night and Sunday morning. Just to be clear, I do think that will finish the year stronger. But I also think that this is the time to review your financial plans and make sure you are well prepared for whatever comes next. Over the last year, investors have, at times, worried mightily about a recession that may or may not be just around the corner. Is one imminent? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is that it doesn't hurt to be prepared. In case some of you weren't investing or during previous recessions, let me give you a quick summary of what happened then. From 2007 to 2009, the market declined 56.8%. That's from peak to trough. In 2000 to 2002, we were down 49.1%. In 1990, down almost 20%. From 73 to 74, down 48.2%. When they hit, they can hit hard and you want to be prepared. I guess what's concerning me are a few things. First, earnings growth is at the top of the list. Earnings haven't been great and analysts are predicting very little for the coming year. The Atlanta Fed just downgraded their outlook for GDP in the fourth quarter to 0.3% from 1%. That's a big drop. But what I really find confusing is that since Labor Day, the yield on the 10-year Treasury has risen by almost 40 basis points, and stocks keep chugging higher. Now, as a refresher, your investment dollars are always looking for their best alternatives. And as yields increase, well, they provide more competition for equities. So I'm not saying that you sell and you run for the hills. Like I said, I think the markets grind higher until the year end. That's what they tend to do. Well, a 
Of course, last year wasn't a good example of that, but you know what I mean. So what do you do? Other than making sure that you have a solid plan in place, there are areas that have lagged behind and in my opinion, offers some good value. Healthcare is one of them. I'd look at something like Merck, symbol MRK. Right now, it's trading around $85. It's paying a better than a 2.5% dividend. Value line, well, they guess that they'll earn uh, $5.45 a share next year, which would be about 11% year-over-year growth. And if that's $5.45 is right, it means that Merck is trading at about 15 times next year's earnings. The last couple of quarters, Merck has raised their guidance primarily because of the success of their key drug, Keytruda. That's the long-term growth story here. The long-term growth story remains heavily tied to Keytruda. The drug has emerged as the clear leader in immuno-oncology space and has also established a dominant position in the most lucrative segment of the market, lung cancer. Peak sales estimates have been raised consistently over the last few years, with some projections now touting Keytruda as a $16 billion contributor by 2025. For some perspective here, the franchise pulled in almost $5 billion in sales during the first half of 2019, marking a 57% year-over-year increase. And they have a great balance sheet. Their earnings are pretty predictable, and the dividend is pretty well covered. Another one I like is Regeneron, symbol R-E-G-N. And I've talked about it before, so I won't do it again here today. But I think it offers value to a long-term investor. And the same with United Healthcare, symbol UNH, and Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. And one of the reasons I like healthcare is because they've reported some of the best earnings growth numbers and have been one of the worst relative performers. And I think we all know the reason why. It's because, well, Medicare for all and the bipartisan focus on drug prices. These are real risk, but I think I'm getting enough value to look at them. So healthcare has been one of the worst performers. Two of the best performers sector-wise has been the REITs and the utilities. And that's because interest rates are low and investors are yield starved. But I wouldn't go chasing them at this point. Commercial real estate demand looks like it's waning. According to the last or the latest Fed senior loan officer survey, demand for loans remain feeble. And at the same time, fewer bankers are willing to extend credit. And rents aren't keeping up with inflation, inflation, which eats into relative cash flow. So I'd hold off on adding the rates and the utilities. The utilities trade at a 20-forward PE and command a 20% premium to the broad market. But, but the forecasted earnings per share growth rate at 5% trails the S&P by about 3.5%. So they cost much more than the, the average stock in the market, but their growth is much less. We're going to take a break here over the next couple of weeks with Thanksgiving coming up. We have some people traveling and it just makes sense from a timing standpoint. If you have questions or need help, we'll still be around. So you can reach us. The number is 571-261-7670 or email us at podcast, which is plural, podcast 
at xmlfg.com. When we come back on the 3rd or the 4th, I think it is, of December, we'll have Adam Abrahams on as my guest. Adam is a tax and estate planning attorney, and we'll talk about some year-end ideas for you, so you'll want to mark that on your calendar. Let's spend a quick second on the planning side of the ledger. I did a couple uh, a couple of talks about a, uh, a month or so ago about protecting your assets in retirement. And I'll probably do a couple more of these around the March timeframe. But during one of these talks, I got a question about spending down during retirement. And what was the right rate of withdrawal? How much can I take out of my portfolio when I'm retired? It's a great question. First, let me say there is no right rate for spending. It all depends on a bunch of different factors. What we often hear is that 4% is the preferred amount. That's the amount that you can take out and have a high probability of not spending it all before we die. Who knows? And I was surprised when I saw a survey from the American College of Financial Services. This study said that 7 out of 10 people between the ages of 60 and 75 with at least $100,000, said they were unfamiliar with this 4% withdrawal rate guideline. But what really scared me was that about 16% of the survey respondents pegged a 6 to 8% as, or well, 6 to 8% as a safe withdrawal rate. That's high. Well, maybe it's a sign of a 10-year bull market too. I think 4% is a good place to start. It's a good rule of thumb. But what I would suggest is a few things. First, if you're retired, find out what you're currently drawing down. So in other words, sit there, add up all your sources of income, things like social security, pensions, rental income, and then find out how much you're drawing down from your retirement portfolio to bridge the gap. That's your drawdown rate. And after you do that, then you have to see if that's sustainable. When people use this 4% guideline, it's assuming a 60% equity and a 40% bond allocation with the 30-year time horizon. Your portfolio or timeline may look a lot different than that assumption. If you're retired or if you retired later, say 70 years old or 75, well, you may be able to withdraw down at a higher rate. If you're an ultra-conservative investor and you only buy bonds and CDs, well, you may need to take out less. These are things I suggest that you think about when you're planning. I think 4% is probably a good rule of thumb to start, but you should really see what works for you. And you'll need to stay flexible too. I can't emphasize that enough. If you retire and the market goes south, you might have to reduce your spending during that time. If you overspend in a down market, that leaves less than your portfolio to bounce back. A lot of recent research that I've seen has been on sustainable withdrawal rates, and that supports the idea of tying it in with portfolio performance. Excuse me. In other words, retirees take less out in down market years and can potentially take out more in years when the market performs well, as it recently has. Find out what works for you. If you want, we can help. 
Okay, we've run out of time for today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. As I said, we'll have Adam Abrahams on. But until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. This has been Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing. Have a great holiday and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.